Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Greg, 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 Greg. What is it? I need to erase a lot. Erase a lot of my emails. My emails because, because North Korean hackers. Calm down. Catch your breath. We deal with this all the time here in the IT department. So you're worried that hackers are going to make some of your internal emails public? This morning? You know the little blue wheel that spins and spins while you're waiting for the new cat video to load? Yes, we call that the little blue endlessly spinning wheel. Yeah. Well, today, inside of it, I briefly glimpsed the face of Kim Jong-un. He was staring at me. You sure it wasn't just the Eye of Mordor? Because we're getting a lot of that ever since they merged with Comcast. No, it was him. He's coming to get my emails, Greg. Well, let's see how bad a problem this is. Give me a word to search for, and I'll find the email. Okay, uh, a chump wagon. One word? Mm-hmm. Okay, here it is. Oh, I remember this one. You sent it to me, and you called Garrison Keeler. Yeah, 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 yeah. Calm down. Nobody's listening. Look, you also called him a chunder muffin and a plague boil. Greg, you have to erase it. If he ever sees it, I'm totally finished in public broadcasting. Yeah, this is what's known in my business as F-I-Y-S. What's that? Forget it. You're screwed. Look, it's already stored in several locations. Then you have to destroy those other locations. That's not as easy as it sounds. Crash the moon into the earth. Destroy all life as we know it. Just We'll just start over in a new dimension in the multiverse. You might be overreacting a little. This is a slightly awkward situation, but it's not a reason to take drastic measures. Maybe the big takeaway is don't send emails calling people horrible names. Yeah, but what fun is that? Uh, or you could continue being an idiot who occasionally needs to destroy the solar system. Today on The Scramble, the fallout from the Sony hack, six kinds of religious pilgrimage, and a lawsuit against a gun company. And now he says all of his embarrassing emails were typed by his cordless mouse, Colin McEnroe. It's true. We just got them. But I go home at night and it writes its own emails. Uh, they're not from me. So uh, we'll, we're going to talk about the Sony hack in the second segment here. Um, a lot of interesting questions, uh, first of all, about how this came about, but also about how news organizations make decisions about whether to use material like this, material that is essentially kind of tainted uh, because of its pirated status, but not necessarily unimportant or useless. I also did not realize the Eye of Mordor had merged with Comcast. That may be worth a segment uh, on a future show as well. Uh, and uh, then towards the end of the show today, we'll, we'll be, um, as sort of part of the sad second anniversary of the Newtown shooting, which was yesterday, we'll be talking specifically about a lawsuit, um, an unusual kind of lawsuit. Lawsuits against gun manufacturers are very difficult to file, especially after 2004, but we'll talk about a lawsuit in connection with that that is uh, being filed. So, but we're going to begin with Bruce Filer. We've had him on this show before. We liked him so much. We wanted him to come back especially because uh, he's hosting the PBS miniseries Sacred Journeys, which premieres tomorrow night here at CP- on CPTV at 9 p.m. Uh, this is a series of uh, six uh, documentaries uh, about pilgrimages, pa- sacred pilgrimages uh, of the type from around the world, from, uh, from many different uh, continents. Uh, but they all kind of have a common thread. First, first of all, Bruce Filer, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you very much. Uh, great to be with you, Colin. So first of all, tell us how it was that you in particular decided, uh, or, or how, is it, how is it that you come to be the person uh, who's guiding us through these pilgrimages? Why Bruce Feiler? Well, as you know, I've spent many of the last 20 years going on religious adventures uh, of this type. My book, Walking the Bible, in which I retraced the five books through through five different countries in the Middle East, was published in 2001. And that also became a three-hour series on PBS a few years after that. And I wrote Abraham and Where God Was Born and a series of books in this space. And about five years ago, PBS came to me and asked me if I would make a show about pilgrimage. And my my initial reaction was actually hesitant. Um, I said, well, you know, I didn't want to make a series of Wikipedia entries about, oh, these are strange journeys that strange people go on in strange places. I didn't want the whole thing to be other and, and distant, if you will. But what I did what was interested in and what I said to them was, what do you hear most in religious circles these days? You hear, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Like, I'm on a journey of some kind. Like, everybody is seeking something. And I said, you know, if we made a series that whatever journey people are on, they can see themselves reflected in the journeys that they see in this, you know, on the screen on, on PBS, well, that's something that's a perhaps a greater and more difficult challenge, but something I'd be interested in. One thing it seemed as though, I was sort of looking for common threads uh, running through these stories, and these stories do span from India to Africa to Lourdes and France to uh, Shikoku uh, in uh, Japan. I I was looking for, and I'm sure you were too, looking for sort of common threads among these pilgrims. It seemed as though a lot of people were trying to get through some transition. It could be a relatively simple one like two medical students about to become doctors or something, just sort of wondering, you know, what it means to have chosen this profession, to somebody trying to get over a, a, a Muslim, trying to get over a, who's been through a divorce. To I mean, it seemed time after time it, there was some kind of transition that was playing out against the backdrop of this pilgrimage. I think that's exactly right, and that's very in- insightful on your part. I mean, I, I would say just to sort of set the stage here, okay, so this was five years in, in the making that we you – know, it was a year to find the pilgrims, a year to figure out which pilgrimages we wanted to do, et cetera. And then last year, basically in the course of 12 months, I went on six of these pilgrimages. You mentioned India, went to Lourdes with 40 wounded warriors from Iraq and Afghanistan – there, we did go on the Hajj back to Africa with African-Americans reclaiming, uh, reclaiming their tribal roots. There is an hour on the Jesus Trail and the, the Jewish pilgrimage, too, uh, during Sukkot. And I think that what's really going on, from, from my point of view, is that organized religion is more threatened than ever, as we all know and we hear about all the time, right? Membership, attendance, even the number of people who define themselves as religious, all those numbers are going down and have been going down for quite a while. And yet pilgrimage is up, and not just upsurging. The, the, the UN held its first ever World Congress on pilgrimage in September in Santiago de Compostela in Spain. And they released a study at that time that a third of all tourists in the world are pilgrims. And they this is not like some hype organization. This is the UN pegged this number at 330 million people a year. That's basically a million people a day going on what they talk about as spiritual travel. And I think you're exactly right. The people tend to do it in moments of transition, whether they're young people graduating from some school and heading into their lives. People do it in times of loss. So 
they lose a job or they lose a parent or, God forbid, lose a child. Uh, divorce, we have, you mentioned somebody during the Hajj has a divorce. A lot of retirees do it, sort of about to begin the final act in their lives. And I think that that when these things are difficult and and they they happen, that they bring out, their suffering is involved and they put you in this dislocation. And of course, if you look at the great religious narratives, whether it's the biblical narrative or the, the Buddhist narrative or the Hindu narrative, they also involve you know, people leaving the civilized world, going into the wilderness of some kind, having a transformational experience, and then coming back and sharing that with people in the civilized world. So the sort of the religious narratives here tend to sync up with the individual narratives of the pilgrims. I, another thing that intrigued me um, was that so often there seemed to be this very interesting collision between the 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 imperfections of the body and the fallibility of the body and the unpredictability of the body with that notion of immutable spirit uh, of um, uh, of eternal religious presence um, emanating from some particular site. So, I mean, you really see it with the wounded warriors, obviously, going to Lourdes. But it's sort of there in some of the other ones, too. And the Japanese one, you know, it's a 700-mile trek around this uh, island. You have this uh, retired Marine who didn't make it the first time and is trying to go back. And he's a man who kind of looks like he's kind of out of shape. And uh, a lot of the conversation is really sort of about my body. Can my body do this? And and that's a hard one, that 700-mile trek. It's over very difficult terrain. In Lourdes, there isn't like so much distance to traverse, but you have these people whose bodies are broken uh, and, and who are there. If, it feels like there's something about that. Can I get my physical body to do something it doesn't necessarily automatically want to do or be able to do and, and in connection with this sort of other, much more eternal question? First of all, you're very good. It's great to be with you. And I, and I would say that's exactly right. I mean, think about your life. Think about all of our lives. I'm a cancer survivor and went through six years ago quite a physical ordeal. And we know in our own lives that the that it, when we're comfortable, when we're fat and happy, when we got money in our pocket and it's the holiday season and we're surrounded by, by joy and family, we're on top of the world. It's in those moments that perhaps we are less sensitive to others and less open to other ideas or maybe someone or, or something higher. But sure enough. In moments of loss, whether it's the loss of a, of a loved one, whether we physically fail in, in, in some capacity, or whether we suffer in, in any way. It's in those moments that uh, we reach out to others, and there are these sort of windows, if you will, these kind of life opens up a little bit, and these, and these other possibilities uh, enter into our consciousness. And that we know from, from life. I mean, I've spent a lot of my life of looking at meaning, what it means to live a meaningful life. And these moments of breakthrough often occur in these moments of, of pain and suffering. And so, therefore, it's something about these journeys that they, it is difficult. You're going to a foreign country. You're in different time zones. The accommodations aren't always great. The food is sometimes difficult. Uh, but yet that whole th- – that experience to a certain extent reinforces the emotional and spiritual seeking that we're under. And, yes, I think pilgrimages are sort of forcing – uh, forcing on you these moments when you will be open to change. You sort of also wonder whether at some Jungian level this is just kind of imprinted on us, you know, that that, that we want to do something like this or that with the need to do something like this. Because it's, I mean, you could look at these six journeys, these six pilgrimages, and they really are kind of different in some ways and similar in others. But, I mean, you could all, and the movie Wild is coming out right now based on yes. Cheryl Strade's book. There are in, I just listened to a Third Coast audio thing about the Appalachian Trail, my millionth thing about 
about the Appalachian Trail. And people do these things sometimes for what seem to be a little bit more temporal or secular reasons, sometimes for overtly religious reasons. But you kind of wonder, you know, if Joseph Campbell were still around, whether he'd be saying, well, you know, no, just, you know, all of our myths just have that, right? Well, there's no doubt that as long as humans have walked, they've walked to get closer to their gods, right? So Buddhists have them, Hindus have them, Zoroastrians have them, Jews, Christians, and Muslims all have them. Uh, the word for human being in Tibetan is goer, one who goes, right? The Buddha said, if you if you die during a pilgrimage, you will, you will go to a higher level of enlightenment. So uh, a- absolutely, this is kind of core to the human experience. But I think that, you know, we, we've almost forgotten to a certain extent that this is uh, the way the religious journey goes. I mean, I, I, like, I, I'm going to date myself with this story, but I, I grew up in the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, right? And to me, when I was growing up, to believe in God, right, to be a believer, to someone engage these questions, it always seemed to me that God was like that star on the, on the, on the floor where Johnny Carson used to come out and stand. Like, you were either on that star or you were off that star. You either, like, believed in God or you didn't believe in God, right? You either were religious or not. Well, that we now know that that is a very outdated and unrealistic expectation. Everybody's moving in some capacity, right? They go through periods of belief. They go through periods of doubt. They seek. They question. They retreat, okay? In this moment, you're not so interested. In this moment, you're very interested. And so we've misunderstood religion as being a fixed thing. In fact, it's a a moving thing. And you combine that with the core human act, right? And the thing that distinguishes humans from our ancestors is the idea that we can walk, is that we are upright and we are moving. So I think that the idea that we should almost in a, in a way reconsider religion less as going to a building at the time the building tells us to show up and we sit passively in a pew and we listen to someone lecture at us from a mountain, from a book that's been closed for thousands of years. Nothing about that is the way humans live today, right? What is the way humans encounter the world today? Answer, the Google box, right? It's that search box. Search is how we get information, and increasingly search is how we experience religion, too. Um, This, by the way, will lead very nicely into tomorrow's show. We've decided to re-air a full-hour interview with Thomas More. I did a while back about his his book, uh, Religion of One's Own. It's coming out in paperback, exactly what Bruce Feiler is talking about right now. By the way, uh, we're talking about Bruce Feiler's series on Sacred Journeys, uh, which premieres tomorrow night uh, on CPTV at 9. So that's an interesting point, that the notion of religion is maybe a little bit more fungible and elastic uh, than we, we sometimes make it seem or allow it to seem. And it seems to me that another thing in this uh, series is that a lot of terms are more fungible and elastic than we make them seem. And I think in particular the word healing, okay? So you've got uh, a lot, I mean, a lot of people are looking for healing on these journeys. It's one of the things that gets people uh, out there on their feet uh, walking towards these places. But, you know, when you go with the wounded warriors to Lourdes, so, you know, there would, it would be naive, and I think people aren't, you know, naive, to expect a miraculous he- healing yeah. for a whole group of uh, of, of wounded warriors, of, of ex-military people who have lost legs. And, I mean, they, they're just not going to get their legs back going there. But um, And not all of them are, as you suggest, deeply religious in any conventional sense. But they're all there. I mean, you know, they didn't not go to Lourdes. So, mm. so tell, us, tell us what you saw in their it's states really, of mind. It's amazing, Colin. It really is incredible. It's never been seen on television before. It took us a year to get permission from the Pentagon to even go on this trip. Okay, Mm -hmm. so 40 wounded warriors, they go, uh, they're in wheelchairs, some are in hospital gurneys, and they go to Lourdes in southwest France. Now, some of these pilgrims, like we've been talking about, the Hajj and and the Jesus Trail, these are going in the footsteps of places where prophets walked hundreds or uh, thousands of years ago. This is totally different, Lourdes, right? This is in 1858. A 14-year-old peasant girl has multiple encounters with the Virgin Mary 
story, and up pops this shrine that now is the second most popular uh, after the Vatican. Four million people a year go to Lourdes. And in, in, the, in the 50s, after World War II, they started this international military pilgrimage, really as a gesture of reconciliation among warring armies. And so now, these many years later, uh, you've got uh, tens of thousands of people show up from uh, over two dozen countries. And the United States sends 500 people. And we were with this group of, of 40. And as you said, one has no legs. One is blinded. One African-American sniper from Kansas had a grenade go off in his mouth. And they have been treated. They have been healed in the conventional sense. And yet they still long for something and they go on this journey. And for sure, there's a sort of huge degree of skepticism. You know, there, oh, this guy Juan Roldan, the staff sergeant from the Army, uh, whose uh, patrol car was hit with a missile in, in uh, Sadr City in Iraq. You know, he's sort of saying, you know, at one point you got to get naked to go into these baths and there's volunteers who wrap you in sheets. And he's like, I'm a guy. I felt uncomfortable. You know, nothing about him was natural. And yet he's searching for something. I, it, I mean, it's almost like I could defy you, you know, to watch this and not tear up because you realize that there is they need permission to release their emotions. But, and then there's also a kind of safety and comfort that comes in being in the community. And that's what you see in a lot of these pilgrimages and a lot of these shows uh, that we're you know, going to air on PBS, which is this sort of community of the traveler builds up along the way. Yeah, that seemed to be a, a big part of this. There's, you know, you were talking about sort of where is God? Is God this kind of star in the middle of the stage uh, for Johnny Carson to stand on, or, or is God diffused in a different way? And it seems as though that's one of the other questions about these pilgrimages: is where where is it you're, you're really going, and is it the destination that you're going to, or is it the journey that you're on, and the people that you're with? I mean, inevitably, you're with a whole bunch of other people, and maybe if healing or, or enlightenment or whatever fix it is that, that that you're looking for is located anywhere, it's located in the people around you as opposed to the destination you chose. And we know from studies of contemporary religion in the United States that that people who have 10 or more intimate uh, friends, colleagues, neighbors in their religious institutions will have higher rates of participation. And we know that that is one of the things that people communicate. Why? I mean, when I was working on Walking the Bible and I was out in the desert, this comes out so powerfully when you sort of look into the, the, the scriptural stories, right? You go in the desert. I spent a lot of time in the desert in my life in the last 20 years. You cannot survive alone. You might think you want to, but you cannot. You can only survive with the, the community uh, around you. It's completely necessary. And that's what happens on these journeys, right? Again, it's difficult. You're not going to be able to survive by yourself. You need people to encourage you, to share stories with, you know, to have conversations with. A lot of this is what the community creates. I think that's what will happen. I'm almost, again, prepared to guarantee you watch this series, you're going to have a meaningful conversation with those around you over the holidays. And that's really ultimately what is the primary you know, cause of meaning? It's purpose, it's having a destination, and it's community. It's the conversation and the intimacy that you build with people. That's ultimately where the meaning comes from. Um, well, let me ask you this, uh, Bruce Feiler. As you have pointed out, this is not exactly your first, first rodeo in this regard. On the other hand, <laughs> this, this is kind of a different thing that you were doing and a little bit more uh, multi-pronged all at once. So how did it change you? Are you aware of ways in which this process and seeing these six fairly different kinds of pilgrimages altered you? Well, when I was making Walking the Bible, I was in every scene, and I was in the one. I was the one effectively going through the emotional and intellectual transformation. And when we set out to do this, it became very clear I couldn't do that in all these different mm-hmm. traditions. And so that's why we spent so much time finding the pilgrims. And I would say, 
you know, I, it was, first of all, incredibly life-affirming. And I think that what the biggest change that I sort of encountered, besides seeing this, just the awesomeness of this spectacle of doing this in one year, which, of course, we can do now, over, took me, it was 120,000 miles. And I traveled because we live in the age of discount airfare, which makes travel so much easier. But I think that what I, I think that what I took away was sort of, even more empowering to me that we live in this age of sort of DIY faith where we can make our own decisions and decide what we believe. And I think to see all these people doing that, it, it, it gave it pushed me further to say, okay, it's okay that if I don't want to sort of follow every single uh, tenet and rule of the tradition that I'm in, you know, half of Americans will change faith in the course of their lives. Four in 10 Americans are in an interfaith marriage. And I'm the father, um, uh, as you know, of 10-year-old daughters. And this allows me to say to them, hey, you don't have to do what I tell you. Don't just sit passively and accept this tradition that your parents are giving you. You decide for yourself. That's, to me, what this is ultimately about, right? A pilgrimage is, at its core, a gesture of action. It's saying, I'm going to get up off the couch, and I'm going to decide what I believe myself. It's harder, but ultimately it can be more fulfilling. Although there's, you know, there's an interesting paradox here. By the way, never say to your children, "You don't have to do what I tell you." Uh, that's a huge. <laughs> they're still ten, right? When they're fourteen, I'm going to regret that. It's Is a that giant strategic error. <laughs> um, but um, no, and there's sort of an interesting paradox here too, because I mean, I, I, granting everything that you just said, which I think is all true, the other component of these journeys is something very ancient and very traditional. Uh, you know, it, it is, it, 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 there's um, a yearning for connection to something considerably older than one's self uh, that, yeah. that's part of this. Well, yes, I think that what we see in, in religion, right, is that people kind of break away from institutions because they're frustrated, because of scandal, because I just was reading in the paper today, you know, in, in, in uh, you know, the archdiocese in New York City going to close another 88 churches, right? We, we live in this time where, where organized religion is condensing and people sort of pull away and say, I don't need all that, right? You know, I'll do it myself. And they quickly find that that also is not going to work, right? So they tend to go – they tend to kind of re regroup in communities and then sort of go out and seeking wisdom uh, from ancient stories. So, yes, I, I believe if you just sort of said, hey, who needs all of that? I'm going to decide for myself and make up my own morality. That's also, I think, a fool's errand. And that therefore, the, the, the best way, the kind of equilibrium is sort of a conversation, if you will, between contemporary life uh, and uh, these ancient stories because there's a lot of wisdom in them and also – a dialogue, if you will, between contemporary life and these ancient paths, right? There's something about going on these places where tens of millions of people have walked before that allows you to get out of your own head and, and, and realize that, that, that just staring into our devices and clicking on the next clickbait and you know, going after this sort of digital, ephemeral, virtual world that we're all seeking all the time, that's ultimately not going to answer some of the questions and needs that we have. So I completely agree that what's another thing appealing about a pilgrimage is it's the contemporary in dialogue uh, with the past. Perfectly said. Bruce Feiler, great to talk to you again. The premiere tomorrow night, CPTV, uh, for Sacred Journeys uh, with Bruce Feiler. Watch this series. We're going to end this segment um, with, uh, and I don't usually introduce the song, but I know that we're going to get a lot of calls from people saying, what was that? That's great. So this is uh, in honor of Lourdes and Bruce's journey there. Um, it's a Leonard Cohen song called Song of Bernadette. You're hearing it sung by Jennifer Warnes. There was a child named Bernadette I heard the story long ago 
She saw the queen of heaven once And kept the vision in her soul No one believed what she had seen No one believed what she heard There were sorrows to be healed And mercy, mercy in this world So many hearts I find Broke like yours and mine Torn by what we've done and can't undo All right, we officially live in an insane world when a Seth Rogen uh, and James Franco comedy uh, can actually, and we don't really know this to be absolutely the case yet, but it seems as though a, a, a soon-to-be-released uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco comedy uh, may have impelled the leader or the government or somebody connected with the government of North Korea uh, to stage a massive cyber assault on the movie company that made it. Uh, so just that is proof that we have completely globally lost our minds. But with that, with the hack of Sony, has come, along, come a whole series of questions about how the press should use the information that suddenly available uh, through the hack. If you would like to read a very stupid and self-important essay about this, please go to the New York Times immediately and read what Aaron Sorkin is right, has written. If you would like to read the smartest thing I've seen about it, you should read what uh, Emily Yoshida, the enter- entertainment editor for The Verge, uh, uh, wrote about it, which is why she's on today and not Aaron Sorkin. Not that he would have been on here anyway. <laughs> uh, so Emily Yoshida, you, were, you had to ask yourself a series of fairly penetrating questions about this, right? I mean, suddenly all this information uh, is available, and some of it is stuff that the Verge would, or, and nobody, no legitimate press organization would ever use. People's social security numbers, and, and you know, I mean, just key right. pieces uh, of that kind of data. Nobody's going to use it. There are some essentially pirated movies that are suddenly available, uh, and then there's like all this other stuff that does fall somewhere within the rubric of news. Some of it's intra studio gossip and emails people wish that they had not sent, which they had, but which are are now available to be read, and, and some real information there. And and you kind of, I think, I sensed reading your piece, you almost surprised yourself by your uh, your your reaction that, you know, a lot of this stuff is tainted fruit somehow. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm mostly surprised because I think I kind of am on the more conservative end in this dialogue as far as, um, as far as colleagues that I have, not at The Verge, but in, in general in the media. I think I think overall, with a lot of um, a lot of newer media websites, there's sort of this understanding that once something's out there in the public domain, which obviously the the Sony data was not supposed to be in the public domain, but now it is and can't really be put back in the box, and that you know there's this there's this difference between in, in mentalities between you know I think a lot of the people you know especially people in power at Sony where it's like, Oh, we can, we can clean this up and we can put it back away. And people who have been raised on the internet and have more importantly had their entire journalistic careers exist on the, on the internet where, uh, 
where it just it that that's just not we know that that's not possible we know that once information is out there it's pretty much fair game and the question is what you do about that and whether or not it's really worth it uh you know ethically and also just in terms of traffic i mean let's be honest most of these sites are are trying to play a traffic game and that's that's why you know there's been so much talk about you know for for example the the amy pascal and scott rudin emails um uh, that that's just been such a driving story in all of this. So yeah, we're it's we're kind of in. The, I feel myself like I'm kind of in between this sort of older generations, uh, yeah, kind of you know thinking about this in ethical terms, even though we could theoretically post whatever we wanted right now, <laughs> um, and there's not really strong legal. Uh, it, it's still very murky legally. What we, what we what we can and can't do with that information. So uh, let, me, let me just sort of um, press a little bit on a few of the buttons here. So w- one one question would be, all right, so this stuff is available. The toothpaste cannot be put back in the tube. Sony has hired David Boyce uh, to try to do that through legal action. But yeah. as you just said, anybody uh, who grew up in the Internet knows it's just not going to work. So some people would say, and maybe people in Verge said to you, well, so since the toothpaste is out of the tube, you know, let's just treat all of it as news. Anything that really might attract a viewership uh, or readership, we're, we're not in the business of holding back stuff that we know. So, what was your answer to that? I mean, in, in some cases, you decided exactly on, on that uh, on that basis. But what was your what's the counter argument? Uh, well, we're actually, and I think, kind of, we were in a very strange place when all of this started happening because I just started as the entertainment editor at The Verge, um, pretty much a couple days after the, the first leak happened. It was, um, I think I started on the twenty the 24th or something. So I think the first leak happened on, on the 20th. So, and The Verge, at, up until this point, I mean, they've done a lot of uh, pop culture coverage, but my hire there was sort of the official beginning of them doing a concerted effort to cover the entertainment industry and pop culture and music, movies, all that. So I'm, you know, I, I was kind of still in the midst of drawing up what our our actual um, approach to this kind of coverage was going to be, and that of course, like the story just drops in the middle of it, and we have to kind of like, it's not just what would the Verge cover, it's like because we don't even really have that set in stone yet. We and you know what what we believe is important to our audience and how we can best serve them. But there, there so, seemed to be some part of you that you didn't want to do, as I think you said in the piece, the legwork for North Korea, which was engaging in a fairly openly hostile and anti-democratic act, right? I mean, they don't have a First yeah. Amendment in North Korea. Uh, they don't care about our, our First Amendment here. But they were basically saying to content creators, big, big-scale content creators, we don't like the content you created. We are going to visit destruction and wrath upon you any way we can. You were uncomfortable doing to be, being an instrument of that particular will. Yeah, no, and I, and I, I still feel that way. Um, I... And, you know, we still don't obviously know for sure whether or not this was North Korea, but it's, I don't know of any other better theory at this point mm-hmm. of who's behind this. So it, assuming that that is the case, uh, it just seems kind of hypocritical to me to benefit from a group of people who are trying to punish us for our exercising us as a country, you know, I guess. We didn't all vote on on Sony releasing this Seth Rogen James Franco movie, but um, you know, but it's still 
a part of our First Amendment, that they can release that movie if they want to. And it just seems hypocritical to me to to uh, kind of, I guess, join in that punishment of that um, as the media itself, as the press. We wouldn't, I mean, it, some people that I follow and talk to about these sorts of issues have brought up the kind of hypothetical of, well, what if it was a media company? What, what if it was Vox Media, who I work for, um, that got leaked, that got all of their information dumped? And we would feel, I'm sure, much different about it, especially if it was coming from a group that was, you know, in opposition to something we had written or some way that we had expressed ourselves. It kind that of- would be seen as uh, as unacceptable. And I think that I think that it's it's more of a generational thing than a kind of media thing, because I think there's a wide perception that, oh, Sony, they have millions and billions of dollars, like they deserved us on some level. There's some idea that to kind of laugh and point as, as this giant company gets kind of brought to its knees. Well, some of, that's but, re, some of that's reinforced by the content itself, right? In other words, if you yeah. start seeing emails between two Sony executives talking like with the, just a level of middle school humor about the movies that they should uh, allow uh, President Obama to screen, and they're all movies about right. being black and being a slave and, and with Kevin Hart. And, I mean, it's, you know, those the, the cravenness of some of the emails tend to reinforce the notion that, at some level, justice is being visited upon this company. I mean, I don't know how different their emails ultimately are from anybody else's anybody internal else's. emails, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have lived out in Los Angeles for a while. I just moved to New York and I've, um, you know, I've worked here and there within the entertainment industry. And so for me, the language, the way, not that I've ever, I've never worked for Scott Rudin or Amy Pascal, but the language and the kind of like chest beating hyper-aggressive, very dramatic language that's in a lot of these emails, and a lot of it is, of course, very misogynistic and racist, but that was less surprising to me, I guess. Um, not that it's not that it's okay at all, and we should definitely hold people who are in such influential positions accountable for this kind of thing, but the argument that it's okay to, like, one of the arguments is that, you know, we're shedding light on how a very powerful corporation works and the people that are at the top of this corporation and I would agree that that's useful to know and I think you know I think in another uh in another scenario if this was leaked by say a disgruntled employee or something uh I would have less of a problem with this stuff all being out there. It's, yeah. uh, so that's an interesting that's question. An in other words, you, you've decided that it does. I mean, some people would say it doesn't make any difference who broke the pinata. The candy's on the floor. And so whether it was Edward yeah. Snowden or Chelsea Manning or North Korea, the candy's, candy's on the floor. Some of it's really good candy. We should grab it and do with it what we do with candy. But you're, you, for you anyway, it does make a difference who broke the pinata and how. Yeah, absolutely. I think because, I mean, I've definitely been in a situation where I'm, you know, re reposting or, or re-reporting on, uh, on stuff that's been gotten through, you know, either a leak or, you know, I think a really famous example was, uh, when the prototype for, I think iPhone four or something, uh, was out, it was basically somebody left it at a bar and sent it into Gizmodo. Uh, and I think it was Gizmodo and it, uh, and you know, and everybody kind of reported that story, and and because it was sort of, it was a, it was an oops situation. It was an accident that happened that was at the expense of Apple, and that seemed less. It, it wasn't a, it wasn't a punishment of Apple. In fact, 
you could almost see it as free publicity for Apple, even though they didn't see it that way. They got they got through it somehow. Anyway, we know that they survived. Yeah, yeah. they were able to tough it out. Yeah, and and I, I just think that it does matter in this in this situation. I think it. I think especially for long term, what you want to be able to say about the outlet that you work the outlet that you work for, what your mission is, I guess journalistically to sound ultra Aaron Sorkin-y about it, <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, this stuff does matter. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that the majority of readers at Gawker or whatever other sites that have been following the story, I think the majority of them don't seem to care that much, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, I, it's a generational thing. And yeah. I'm saying this is a... 29-year-old. Right. And I think what's important, Emily Yoshida, is that you brought this stuff up anyway. People may decide not to care about it one way or another, but you brought it up in a very thoughtful piece of writing on Verge. I do want to say, and we kind of buried this lead, but people can now go and read it, but one of the things Verge has decided, Emily and Verge have decided to cover, is that within those emails uh, and within all that internal Sony information is a plan to bring the Stop Online Privacy Act back, but uh, perhaps under more uh, becoming or beguiling uh, disguises. And so uh, read about that in Verge. Uh, that's like a whole other conversation. If we started that, we'll, we'd burn the whole show up. But Emily Yoshida from The Verge, thanks so much for joining us today. And we're going to take a little break here. We'll come back. We have to have a final conversation. Uh, well, we don't have to, but we, we want to have a final conversation about Newtown. The two-year anniversary was yesterday. There's a lawsuit final today. We'll tell you more about that when we return. I'm going to tweet and update your ain't a thing you can do about it. You just got I know your password. I'm giving it out. I know One reason I'm worried about the email hack is that I have a pretty high profile inside Sony Pictures in terms of having seen the Spider-Man sequel 21 times. And they sent me some emails to see if I was okay. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Tucker Ives, and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our intern is Jackie Filson. The part of Bill Curry was played by Andrew Garfield. Mmm, Andrew Garfield. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and screenshots of the Faith Middleton Show staff's emails to Channing Tatum, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a conversation about religion with Thomas More. Now, back to Colin. All right. Uh, yesterday was the second anniversary uh, of the shooting at Newtown, and this will be uh, an anniversary that just stays with us in Connecticut for as long as there are people alive who remember it and probably beyond that. Uh, but with each passing year, probably the way in which we think about it uh, mutates uh, and changes, and there are new developments. Uh, so joining us is Monty Frank. He's an attorney from Newtown, leader of Team 26, and on the board of Sandy Hook Promise. Maybe we could just begin with that uh, conversation. Um, you know, Newtown as a community, has had to really think about and maybe feel about um, how to observe these anniversaries. This is the second one. Uh, it's not as though everybody can speak about this with one voice, but was there kind of a sense of the town and, and, and how people wanted to spend that day? You know, it's different for every person. I know my wife and I reacted differently to um, uh, the healing process following the shootings in our town um, where our daughter went to school. Um, and, and I think if you asked the, each of the 27,000 residents in Newtown, you'd probably get a different reaction. I, I do think that 
you know, we all are grieving and there's a universal feeling of, of sadness um, dealing with yesterday. Um, it's unavoidable as you drive around town, you see purple balloons, you drive by the school, you drive by the firehouse, and these constant reminders are just hard to, uh, it, it's hard to let go. You, we, we, we will never forget, which is we're moving onward and trying to make a difference in the world. So part of that moving onwards and onward and trying to make a, a difference in the world has been trying to get actual tangible, palpable results out there in the world about the way in which uh, guns are, are sold or made available in this country, about the just general status of firearms in this country. You were part of a, a press conference today and uh, um, in the late morning that involved several political leaders and several community people from uh, from Newtown, including some of the, the families uh, themselves. And... Um, you know, I, rather than take you through all those things, I mean, when you say moving forward and trying to, to, to change things, that that's part of what you're talking about, right? Trying to change the maybe the laws in this country or the way the understanding about the rule of guns play. It, it, it's multifaceted. It's changing the laws, and we've had some successes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changing uh, the culture, the way that we feel about gun violence, and it's also working on the mental health aspect, getting into the communities trying to recognize and, uh, you know, when there are people at risk and trying to provide the resources so that uh, it, it doesn't become a problem for others. One of the things that's been announced today, and I don't know how closely involved you are of it, uh, but it is um, a planned lawsuit uh, against Bushmaster, the, the uh, maker of the firearm itself, and the gun shop where it was bought. Um, uh, there's a long history of trying to sue gun makers uh, and, and mix success and, and changes in the possibilities of it since 2004, 2005, when Congress actually passed a law that uh, protected uh, gun manufacturers from a, a lot of kinds of, of lawsuits. Um, is there anything you can say about this particular lawsuit, uh, the, either the nature of it or, or what uh, uh, the groups in, in Newtown expect to see from it? You know, I haven't read the complaint that I understand um – has been filed, mm-hmm. uh, or at least has been served. Um, I, I will read it in the in the in the coming days, um, but you know it, it's part of what we're trying to accomplish. When I when I say that, um, you know, for too long the NRA has had way too much of an influence on Congress, mm-hmm. and the fact that there is some sort of immunity provided to the gun manufacturers that are that is not provided to almost any other manufacturer of any other product. Um, is a problem, and it's part of the grassroots movement that we're building so we can try to reverse um, the influence the NRA has had. And I think we've seen some successes in doing that, and I think we're going to see a lot more successes in the future. And just to make that clear, it's the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, uh, the PLCAA, it's usually called. This was the... the the law, the law passed in Congress, I think in 2004, signed in 2005, uh, very much spurred on by the NRA and uh, by friendly members in Congress. And it really does create this very unusual status, as you say, if there were a toaster that was as dangerous to the consumers uh, who owned it as a gun is, you wouldn't be allowed to sell that toaster. Uh, but um, guns do occupy a different status and have some constitu- constitutional protection. Um, but, you know, this is a very fraught climate uh, and you do have a new Congress coming in. And obviously, People from Newtown uh, have gone down to Washington, and it's easy to say there have been some successes, particularly here in Connecticut, and some failures. Um, I would assume with a new Congress and a new Congress with 
more Republicans in it. Not that Republicans speak with one voice about this, but they're characteristically a little less friendly towards anything resembling gun control uh, than Democrats might be. Does that pose a, a, an additional set of challenges? I don't think so. You know, when I hear uh, Senator Blumenthal, Senator Murphy, Congresswoman Esty uh, speak so passionately and such resolve about trying to get things done and talk about areas where there is some commonality and there is an opportunity to get some things done. Um, so, you know, the, there's a mental health initiative. There's a school safety initiative. Um, I, I believe that background checks, that we will close a loophole. Ninety-one percent of Americans still favor um, a a stronger background check law. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that includes a large uh, percentage of gun owners. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not looking to infringe upon the rights of gun owners. Mm-hmm. Um, we are looking to place into law, um, as we did in Connecticut, as was done in Colorado and Delaware and New Jersey and Washington State, um, things that will decrease the likelihood of another mass shooting and decrease the amount of gun violence that plagues our inner cities uh, but, yeah. on a daily basis. And I think what you're saying is very important, that there's sort of been a balanced message out of Newtown. If Newtown simply turned into this pocket of intense uh, gun control advocacy and sort of nothing else, um, that probably wouldn't be true to the spirit of, of how uh, everybody wants this um, terrible thing to be remembered. And it also, it would sort of identify Newtown in a very monochromatic way. As you're saying, the, the pushes have come in a lot of different areas, including uh, mental health. And I, I also have not read the 40-page complaint uh, in this lawsuit, although my understanding of it, it's an, it, it raises an interesting question. So uh, it is uh, increasingly hard to uh, sue gun manufacturers. And, and so there's this um, argument that's made called uh, negligent entrustment. And so the, and the notion basically is, and it kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, that in America... Because of the Second Amendment, there's sort of a lot of people who think, well, you know, I mean, we'll sell guns to people who qualify. Maybe they'll pass a background check if there's one in place there, uh, whatever. And that's it. This is a free country. People buy guns. Uh, We don't always know what's going to happen to them. Uh, And obviously, occasionally there's a tragedy, but that's the price of freedom. I mean, that's sort of a counterargument that gets made. And and so this lawsuit will, I think, be asking a fundamental question, which is, I mean, Nancy Lanza was a qualified gun purchaser. It wasn't as though they sold to somebody who wasn't a qualified gun purchaser. So is that enough? I mean, it's, it's a philosophical question, I think. You know, is it enough to make guns uh, and sell those guns to gun dealerships and for gun dealerships to do a reasonably good job uh, of, of selling guns and not trying not selling, trying not to sell guns to, you know, hideously unqualified people? Or is there is there another question there? Is there a fundamental philosophical question do we have to ask ourselves, you know, that has something to do with well, these are really, really dangerous things and, and they can very easily pass from the hands of Nancy Lanza to an Adam Lanza, and at which point the picture changes drastically. So so is it enough just to have some good background checks to tweak the laws or is there a bigger question the country has to ask itself? I, I think there's a bigger question that the country has to ask itself because it's, you know, you, I, I think the laws will, the change in the laws will um, certainly promote um, some additional safety that people can feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think there needs to be a larger discussion about mental health, about responsible gun ownership, um, about hunters' rights, because nothing that we are looking to do restricts the rights of hunters. But, of course, 
hunters aren't using high-capacity magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, do we need to have 30-round magazines? What, what purpose does that serve? Um, why not limit it as, at 10 rounds like Connecticut has? Um, do we want to get more involved in communities like Sandy Hook promises promoting to go into the communities on a grassroots basis and give communities a toolbox as to how to recognize uh, people at risk who may need additional help so that we can avoid um, having issues like we had in Sandy Hook and, and elsewhere. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is a part of a conversation. Um, but, you know, just to reiterate, I mean, what this conversation is not about, it's not about taking people's guns away. Mm-hmm. It's not about doing away with the Second Amendment. It's actually about implementing what the Supreme Court has said the Second Amendment says, mm. that reasonable restrictions are appropriate in order to ensure the public safety and the public good and to prevent massacres at the level we're seeing. Right now, there have been 94 school shootings since Newtown. 30,000 Americans die every single year because of gun violence. Uh, that, 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 that has to change. That can't be acceptable in a first world nation like ours. Uh, Money Frank, uh, I'm running out of time, and I'm about to ask you a four-minute question, which uh, you're only going to have about 30 seconds to answer. But I, I assume that Newtown will never be like other towns, that for as long as you live there, it, it, there will be a, an awareness of what happened there, and that that's an incredibly sad thing and a terrible burden. But I sense also for Newtown, there's a sense that it's a town with a purpose. And as horrible as the tragedy is, there is that little mixed aspect of it, that you're, you're living for a reason. There's no question about that. Newtown could have turned inward and uh, become a little island to itself. Instead, I'm so proud of our community because we have lent our voice. We had this massive infusion of media and attention to our town, and we've lent our voice to others, and we've created a movement. We've joined forces with Hartford and Bridgeport and Harlem and Chicago and really unified um, America on this movement to try to make our, our, our schools safer and our community safer. Um, for the betterment, I think, of, of the country. Thanks so much for spending time with us, Money Frank, an attorney from Newtown, leader of Team 26 and on the board of Sandy Hook Promise. We'll be back tomorrow with a conversation with Thomas Moore. It's one we had a few months ago. Uh, it's about making a religion of your own. 